Namaste, viewers. Uh, today, I have a very unusual and a very important guest. Uh, Mukesh Chatterjee is a dear friend, a technocrat, an industrialist, a very successful entrepreneur, uh, uh, and uh, most of all, a lover of Bharat like myself, uh, a very dharmic person in his own personal life. Uh, and so he has some very important things to say uh, regarding my, uh, the topic of my new book, on artificial intelligence. So Mukesh ji, welcome and uh, namaste to you. And I'm very grateful that you've taken the time uh, to, to have this conversation. Uh, you're welcome, Rajiji, and glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. So uh, Mukesh ji, uh, the first thing I want to discuss is China because everybody's talking about China, uh, but people think it has to, the whole topic has to do with some border dispute somewhere or South China seas or uh, you know, Trump putting some embargo or some tariff on them and so on. But uh, you've explained to me, and I'd like you to explain to the viewers, the situation is much deeper and goes back many years. And it's the, uh, it's the climax of many, many years of things that China has been doing in the area of technology and catching up and superseding. So tell us a little bit about that, please. Um, it's a, it's a mixed uh, emotion vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. I must say that on one side, if you go back to China in 1978 when Deng Xiaoping came to power, China was basically a really dirt poor country, uh, while it had come out of cultural revolution, um, have a terrible damage, and um, they were actually on a per capita income or industrialization otherwise were basically way below India. I mean, obviously far below Japan or the United States. But one must look back and then see how far they have come in 40 years. Now, that's very admirable. How they got there, uh, there are certain steps. One is clearly a far-reaching, visionary, very strategic thinking that, and the realization which they realize that it's not the slogans that's going to get them uh, with the red book and red army uh, is going to make them a superpower in the world or an economic superpower along with a significant military strength in the world. They realize that the foundation of their growth and development comes from science and technology. Now, this is not something they discovered uh, suddenly. I mean, history is a guide. We can go back to US history. We can go back to Indian history. We can go to other countries' history. Science and technology is the foundation of any nation that wants to be somebody from nobody or from also rain to somebody who's at the top of the game. So that's what Chinese did. They figured out that they must improve from where they were, which was really poor basis. As a data point in 1978, entire steel industry in China used to produce what a plant, a single plant in Japan used to produce. So that was the magnitude of difference. Starting and the, and the education level was much poorer. Uh, but having said all that, with that strategic vision, where they got to be and where they are today, they very, very surgically and precisely got to that point where they are today by improving the education standard from kindergarten all the way to PhD, focusing on the basics. They provided electricity and water to all the villages and set up the industry in a way what they call TVE, town village enterprises, which allowed them to set up 
lot of ancillary units in the rural areas where people were cheaper and employment, unemployment basically was an issue. All it was a collective farming where people could barely survive to eat two meals a day. And they set up, for example, if you want to build a tie, let's take a specific example being exported to the United States, there will be a small entity that will be making the clip for the tie. There will be another entity that will be making the plastic wrapper for the tie in which it will be put in. There will be third entity which will be putting made in China label. All these different industries were distributed across rural areas and then the city unit will basically assemble and push it out. It's that concept of the synergistic development between rural China and urban China along with the science and technology development is what got them to where they are today, which was what I would call a top-down and bottom-up approach, where the bottom 70, 80% were raised. Granted, their poverty has not been eliminated in China and all those things, but it's at a far lower level than it was 40 years ago. They are lower, poor have become middle class and middle class has become upper class. And that migration had that strategic thought of both top-down and bottom-up approach something uh, very logical, uh, very strategic, and I think I admire them for that. One could argue with the means they used in going it, depending on which side of the aisle you are on, uh, right? I mean, one could argue they're expansionist in nature, their recent behavior or behavior in the past, or for example, the war with, in 1962 with India. I mean, that's a, that's a significant uh, issue the world had to deal with then or has to deal with now. Um, but uh, that's something so you have to admire the people who work hard and succeed. The question is, what can we learn from that? What do we already know? What's one's own history? And then how do you get out of the rut where you are? And that's the discussion, uh, you know, we'll have another segment. But that's really where China is. So on the scale of 1 to 10 in terms of science and technology, if the United States is at 10, I'll say in Many spaces in technology, Chinese are at seven or eight at this point. And given their population is about four times the United States, that many times the engineers and scientists, and, and additional emphasis on science and technology, as opposed to um, in the United States as producing more psychology and history and uh, all kind of majors, uh, Chinese produce a lot more scientists and engineers. So that actually taken together is a, is a huge uh, 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 delta. So I think they're gaining ground. Um, but again, the uh, uh, United States is the leader in innovation. I think it's built into the culture. Uh, and so it's a race. And time will tell where the chips fall. If the strategic technologies are not properly protected in the United States, be it energy storage, be it artificial intelligence, be it uh, semiconductors, biotech, I think the United States will fall behind. Ultimately, every treasure, if it leaks, it depletes, ultimately, no matter what happens. So I think when Trump came into, President Trump came into power, he certainly made uh, effort trying to bridge that leakage, stop that leakage. But at the same time, Chinese perspective is, hey, we, we had a lot of technology in 15th, 16th, and 17th, and 18th centuries, and West took that away from them. 
So it all depends on which side the perspective is. Bottom line is two nations are running a race and the one with the better technology ultimately will win. Thank you. This is very good. Uh, Mukeshi, this is a very historic, uh, very high, fast speed kind of uh, through four decades. So tell us where things stand now. What are some of the strategic technologies? Like how far ahead is China in energy storage? How, how are they doing in terms of papers being produced and scholars? And how, how good are they in this technology as of today? Uh, are you comparing to the United States or India? Uh, either one. Uh, just okay. their stature, sure. like, they, like they're ranking sure. in the world. Because I would sure. guess that they were not in the top 10 some 30 years ago. So where are they right, right now? How, what would be their strengths right now? Um, so, uh, I mean, they've come up quite a bit, obviously, in manufacturing, right? I mean, they're the manufacturing hub of the world, and not only of the way they started, which is to make socks and underwears and shorts and pants. I mean, they produce some of the most advanced materials in the world in bulk. Uh, they produce a lot of machinery around the world. In many instances, their quality may not compete with Germany, but it's good enough for most of the applications and things like those. So about a few years ago, Chinese leadership uh, decided to put emphasis, defined actually strategic enablers. And three of them were energy storage, semiconductors, and artificial intelligence in no particular order. And they decided, uh, they at least set a goal that by 2025, they are going to be the world leader in these three spaces. And there's a uh, very specific significance assigned to each one of them. And that's where the, uh, uh, I think we need to get dig a little bit deeper. If you look at semiconductors, uh, it will be, it's fascinating. Uh, if people think about why did then Soviet Union lost the war in Afghanistan against the United States, effectively a proxy war. And uh, that was the downfall. Uh, that was the starting point of the disintegration of Soviet empire. Well, the reason it happened is fascinating. There was something called the Stinger missile that United States gave then to Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Each missile basically accurately shoulder fired could bring down one Russian plane. What happened was that every time a Russian plane came to bomb, they got shot down very accurately and the missile was shoulder fired because the semiconductor technology had evolved to a point with the accuracy of the missile, trying to fire a plane that was 15,000 feet away was spot on. Nobody else could do it. You didn't need bulky, big anti-aircraft guns and things like those. But what the net result was, the Soviet pilots basically did not ever come low down enough to have any accurate way of putting any bombs. They basically, the whole airspace effectively got freed up. Now, and Soviets couldn't meet with that because they did not have the semiconductor technology to equip their planes in a micro-miniaturized micro form, having that technology in the plane to countermeasure against the missile. So guess what happened? The better technology won, and as big empire Soviet Union was, came down crumbling because ultimately they were a military power, did not have the economic basis, and the technical basis was focused in certain areas, very good, no question about it. But other areas, especially semiconductors, they fell way behind. And that's something to be said about the entrepreneurial spirit of the United States, which is what allowed 
the companies like Intel, Fairchild, National Semiconductors, and many more to come up out of nowhere and sprung into action. So the point I'm making is that semiconductor technology allows a country to grow much bigger, much faster, and it's a core technology that is an enabling technology, whether it's in our cell phones or computers. 20 years ago, what a computer required a full room, today is a cell phone in our pocket. So that's a key technology, and those who are in the top of that game will basically have a huge advantage. Today, it's the United States, Japan, and uh, uh, partially a lot of manufacturing in Taiwan. And Chinese are trying to get hold of that technology, build their own um, semiconductor. They have a large number of semiconductor fabs, the manufacturing plants, but they still have not mastered that art to the magnitude uh, we have here in the United States or Japanese have, uh, but they're trying and um, they ultimately, uh, depending on how they do it, they may, may not succeed. So that's why they want to be the leader in that space. They have seen the Soviet Union versus United States in 1980s and 90s. Uh, next thing is on the energy storage. As you know, that the whole world is going, trying to get carbon product, emission reduction and everybody wants to go green. Uh, but transportation is about a third of the carbon that's emitted today in the world. And power plants are another, roughly another one third. And if we want this transportation sector, be it two wheelers, be it cars, be it trucks, they got to go to battery based, the electric vehicles as opposed to um, combustion engine, which uses petrol. So the issue is how do you make the transformation? So far, the batteries actually have been very expensive. And those batteries and the cheaper one like lead acid battery does not last too long. So I'm not talking about the battery that goes in the front of the car, which is basically used to start the engine. I'm talking about much larger bulk of the battery that will replace the engine of the car itself. So you just charge your car and go. And in that space, uh, the Today, the dominant car companies are in the United States and in Japan. And even the Japanese companies manufacture more in the United States than they do it in Japan. And the reason is because the technology for the combustion engine, very reliable combustion engine, and all the other paraphernalia that exists in the United States. Now, how, how does one knock down that industry and not knock down, but get ahead or leapfrog that industry? Then you got to do what I would call a nonlinear innovation not the more of the same. You can only improve combustion engines so far. One has milked it to death for 60 years. If you want to leapfrog, only way to leapfrog is to come up with a better technology. Well, batteries are a better technology. And that's why Chinese government is putting incredible sums of money, tens of billions of dollars worth of research, tens of billion, not 10 billion, uh, into this space so that they can get ahead of the curve. They're filing more patents in battery in China than being filed in the United States today, and they've mastered advanced materials. Some of the biggest manufacturing plants of batteries are in China today. So their goal is to make the cheaper battery, which they can put in the car, in the truck, in the two-wheeler, and in that process, basically control two to three to four trillion dollar worth of market in the world. So this is the That's electronic vehicle. Huge though. money. So this is the electronic electric vehicle, vehicle yeah. electric vehicle, the Tesla and many others like Tesla. So, right. so, so is it true that a large majority of this, uh, this uh, battery 
uh, lithium battery, the battery for these electric vehicles is Chinese. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think there are very many manufacturers in the United States. We are the hub of innovation in the United States when it comes to coming up with a new battery in the lab. But when it comes to manufacturing, because unfortunately, the United States exported most of its manufacturing prowesses uh, to China and to other countries. So now we are left holding the bag thinking, okay, we got this great battery. Okay, where do I make it? Well, you got to make it in China. Well, if you make it in China, then they have access to the technology. Well, that's a dilemma, but what are you going to do? Even Tesla is buying CATL batteries, which is a big, big Chinese company with lithium-ion batteries. So the tragedy, so the thing is, again, it comes down to synergistic upward movement. It's, it's imperative, it's critical, in fact, that if you have a strong R&D, which definitely we do in the United States, then it has to come up on the manufacturing equally well. But unfortunately, that formula was lost in the zeal for quick profits by Wall Street and others in the last 20, 30 years, and the results are for everyone to see. And the third strategic enabler is uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, before we leave batteries, uh -huh. I just want to clarify a little bit. Uh -huh. So uh, the battery technology, the manufacturing and the R&D have a relationship in the sense that uh, the person who's ahead in R&D will also eventually get ahead in manufacturing. Uh, and if you want to set up a factory, uh, to uh, lithium high-tech factory in India, you'll have to import either, you'll have to import the Chinese technology or some, somebody else's technology if you don't have your own. Uh, and and uh, and also uh, what you're say what a point you made very quickly I think require uh, is very important and should be restated that uh, we even where we in the U S have the laboratory uh, advantage uh, because they are in China doing the manufacturing uh, therefore they can also reverse every time you send them at engineering and they have to manufacture it they reverse engineer back uh, figure out what the engineering is and they get a head start in research also. So because they, for instance, when Apple manufactures things, they have to share a lot of the source code. They have to share a lot of the engineering designs. The Chinese people require them to do that. And so uh, when you manufacture in China, they can replicate it on their own terms also is, 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 a, is an important point. And therefore, there's a hidden, hidden transfer of technology, which is kind of not stolen per se. It is open, openly done. But the American company finds itself having to explain all this technology to the Chinese so that they can get the benefit of manufacturing it there. This is a kind of a strategy also. Oh, absolutely. This was very well thought out plan. In fact, in what happened was the Chinese became part of the World Trade Organization and China was given the status of a developing country. So they were allowed to put certain constraints uh, that uh, uh, they can demand 51% ownership by China and disclosure of the technology because it was thought in 90s uh, by powers to be in the United States. Uh, we arrogantly thought that the Chinese will never be able to come up. Well, Chinese used that arrogance to their advantage by setting up these terms in the agreement, allowing unimpeded flow of technology to them. And so they not only learned, they built upon it. And that's the point I want to make a distinction when you were talking about Make, making lithium-ion batteries in India. We have been importing technologies for decades now. What we'd like, Ambassador Car is a great example. They will import something in 1950s and they will keep making it even in 1990s, the same car, same car. Nothing changes except the little light bulb here and a, 
and the shape of the bulb there. Chinese and initially Japanese, they learned something and then they build homegrown innovation on top of it. And that's what separates uh, the, the real players versus the perceived players. Uh, the real players are the one who will pick that technology and build upon. I'll give you an example, in fact, going back. So India was a massive exporter of technology, be it math, be it science. I mean, some of the stuff we did back in metallurgy 2,500 years ago it still cannot be created. For example, woods of steel from which Syrian swords were made or the pillar in Delhi, for example, and many such examples, and we can cite or invention of the zero and all that good stuff. But, and others took it, a lot of, uh, for example, pharmaceutical today, in fact, the first blood pressure medication came out of Sarp Ganda that came out of Ayurveda in India. So point I'm making is that the, the people took all over the world, West and Chinese, they took advantage of the learning that existed from anywhere and built upon it. Yes. The way I look at it is, once it has been built upon, if I'm India, in India, we got to think of it like that was the principle. I loaned it to somebody. They built upon it. I collected back as an interest and then built upon on top of it. There of is no shame. There should be no shame in right. learning from others. We learn it from our teachers in the classroom. Then our job is to build upon it. Yes. Instead, but what has happened in India specifically, this is headset that is sunk in. Swadeshi, meaning everything has to be built from scratch. Now, I, all these same people who talk about building it from scratch, I want to ask them a question. If you're cooking food at home, do you grow your own spices? Do you grow your own pepper? Do you grow every single thing you use at your home? No, you don't. You buy from somewhere, then you build upon it. That's how you cook food. Same thing with technology. And I think that core point is misunderstood. Without homegrown technology, there is no future, period. Yeah. Very good. This is excellent. This is excellent. So let's move to artificial intelligence. What is the state of play in China on artificial intelligence? Um, again, you know, Chinese uh, emphasize their education system, emphasize science a lot more uh, than we did in India, as an example. United States science was always valued at a premium, no question about it, but not so in, um, uh, in India. It's always turning engineers and doctors, for example, uh, versus the scientists. Well, the foundation, when it comes to a lot of the products, is material science, it's physics, it's chemistry, and artificial intelligence, mathematics is the foundation. Now, in India, typically, if you were a good mathematician, you went to engineering school if you were good at science but did engineering, you didn't do your PhD best and the brightest in mathematics. In China, it was the other way around. Science was always kept at the highest level and got the respect and then engineers and then others. Just like what happens in biotech, the researchers in the biotech are held at higher level than a typical medical practitioner because they're clinicians. So the, because we did not, we forgot our mathematical basis in India, although we probably knew more math than anybody for the longest time, having invented a number system to sequences, series, to calculus, and so forth. But we clearly forgot. Uh, and if you forget, well, guess what? You know, bad things happen. So when we forgot that, and we, we, now we have a situation where we are way behind in artificial intelligence, not even a comparison on the scale of one to 10, put, let me put it this way. 
United, if the United States is at 10, Chinese are probably in some instances eight or nine and some instances 11. We yes. in India are probably at, right, we in India are probably at one or two. Now, That's if correct. you believe the pronouncements that come out of uh, universities and uh, political leadership and everybody else, they make it sound like, oh my God, we are almost nearly almost there. That's completely bogus. I was a member of the Innovation Entrepreneurship Committee when Narendra came to power. And uh, I had the privilege to be part of that. And I sat through those many, many of these committee meetings over a period of six months. And I was very surprised. This was my first interaction with the government at any level. And the whole idea, the, the way the world is viewed is if the funds have been allocated, it's equal, equivalent to the job being done. Job is done. I'll give you a specific example. If somebody said they have allocated a billion dollars, let's say 5,000 crore rupees for creating schools to teach skills, technical skills. Once they have made that announcement, as far as they are concerned, the job is done. And my question is, define done. Done means the budget has been assigned. Done means the locations have been identified. Done means the land has been acquired. Done means the building has come up. Done means the professors have been hired or teachers have been hired. Done means the students are there or done means the students are coming in. Teachers are there. Machinery is there to teach them and they are graduating. Define done for me. I could not get that answer even if my life dependent on it on any subject. The victory was declared the day allocation was done of the funds, but there is no validation. I actually will compare this to one more example because I come from that world uh, of uh, uh, you know, uh, computer engineering. When you design chips and circuit boards, there's a team that designed the chips, integrated circuits. There's a completely independent team that verifies independently that the chip design is what it is supposed to do. And those two teams, the verification team does not work for the design team. They're independently verified and only come together at the top. So there's no incentive compromises at any level. The same mechanism must exist if we want to succeed in India, which is when the budget allocation is done, somebody else should be verifying is that done being implemented, right? It's no different than when you innovate. Innovation isn't enough. Innovation must be implemented. And it's only when it's implemented, then it becomes incredible India. What happens is we don't even innovate and we declare it to be incredible India. And that's the problem. So, you know, for this book on artificial intelligence that I, I, I've come out with, uh, I did five years of research. All, it was my original subject in grad school in computer science, but uh, then I moved on to other things. Uh, so I went through every report on AI uh, in the US, uh, all kinds of reports, India, Chinese reports, some of them have been translated by the CIA into, from Mandarin into English, so they're available. A lot of their plans are available. And I was very surprised that, uh, you know, if you look at the conferences on AI, uh, the single largest delegation in most cases is Chinese. If you look at the papers, research papers, it's Chinese. Uh, if you look at who, the papers that are being cited by other scholars, it's Chinese at the top. Number of patents is Chinese. The number of companies that exist and the, and the, and the funding and all that is Chinese. Chinese have really put a lot of money, priority into this technology. 
because it has military applications, it has commercial applications, it has applications for medical drug discovery uh, for, of course, they are also using it for social control. And, uh, you know, so it has applications for that also. So it's a, it's a political device, social device, economic, military, all kind of things. It's sort of where the brains are being amplified from human level to another level. And whoever got more brains, of course, is going to win uh, in all these dimensions. So India lost the boat for I don't know why. And, uh, uh, but India lost the boat. Uh, uh, you know, the interesting thing that bothers me, uh, Mukeshji, which I'm bringing out in this book is India claimed to be the software superpower, uh, like, uh, like uh, uh, China was manufacturing superpower. But in China's case, they took the low-tech manufacturing, made money, but took that profit and reinvested in higher tech, higher tech, higher tech. In India, we took the low-tech uh, wage arbitrage of selling cheap labor in software. So we would hire somebody for $10,000 a year and mark him up for 30000 $40,000. And the client could still save some money. And the guys who were the middlemen made tons of money became very, very rich and big, huge companies were started, you know, all this TCS and Infosys and all these kind of people. But these guys did not reinvest in the future technology. They had the money, they had the manpower, they certainly understood they were in the client organization. So they were, their people are running the New York banks, their people are running the software in the labs in USA, in defense department, in so many places. Uh, while the brains, Indian brains are being outsourced for last 15, 20 years, to do the software development, the actual intellectual property belongs to the client, the American company that hires them. Uh, uh, they are providing the raw material, the brain power, but not owning the technology. And nobody in India thought that, you know, we should actually figure, we, we have our men there, men and women there doing all this research. We should know what is what the client is thinking for the next 10 years. What is his future going to be? So like the IBM Watson, which is their AI machine. So then, you know, Indians were doing all this, providing labor, but never thought, why don't we do our own, uh, similar, similar to the Watson? Why don't we create the engine of AI uh, that is 10 years into the future? Because we have the labor, we have the manpower, we have an advantage in that. So we never did that. So we did wage arbitrage, which is short-term thinking. I can see, yes, they made a lot of money. That's very good. But they should have reinvested this into futurist things. And they never did that. Chinese did that. So there is something about the Chinese entrepreneur to think long term. And maybe it's the government that uh, required them to do it or encouraged them. Maybe they, their spirit was like that. Whereas the Indian very, very big uh, business houses worth tens of billions of dollars uh, had, the, had the opportunity to become leaders. Uh, so, you know, like, for example, you take IBM. IBM is now dividing into two companies. One will be the future, which will be IBM, Watson and Cloud. And that's going to be very highly valued. And the other is the old uh, maintenance of mainframes. Now that old maintenance of mainframes, code, COBOL, all that stuff, they've outsourced to India. So Indian people are very happy that we got more IBM engineers than anybody else has. But those are not, not, not doing futurist things. So this is a, so I, I think we, uh, we have this uh, uh, a huge uh, propensity to look at numbers, how many people are uh, uh, hired and working and how many billions of dollars of revenue they're generating as labor. Uh, so as the labor class, we are, we are not Vishwa Guru, we are sort of Vishwa Kuli. We are doing Kuli work. A lot of it is Kuli work. So what do you think of this? Do you feel that, I feel very sad 
that my fellow Indians have brains have not been properly utilized because the same fellows who come to the United States do very well, make a lot of money and very successful at the cutting edge and become owners and entrepreneurs. You are a, a tremendous uh, role model and uh, inspiration for uh, people. Uh, while the same kind of quality people who are in India, they just used as labor outsourced and uh, brain is for sale. So is there, is there an issue that you think we need to think about also? So what you said, Rajiv, you make a lot of sense. Look, you're spot on. What you are sharing is the bitter truth, which most people don't want to hear, unfortunately, because, I mean, who wants to take a bitter pill or swallow a bitter <laughs> liquid, right? So it's the same situation. Uh, we, uh, there's nothing wrong in uh, wage arbitrage. It's perfectly fine. As long as that wage arbitrage is done with the headset, that ultimately, I'm going to make a high margin product sitting on top of it so that I ultimately stay in the business, not to make a living on a day-to-day -day basis, but on a product basis, which almost always draw high margin, right? I mean, that's a strategy which uh, every developed country has adopted. But in our case, uh, in India case, the you know, TC has done a marvelous job in Infosys and Wipro. I mean, they're all, they've done a wonderful job in raising the level to a certain level. What they fail to do miserably, I believe, uh, is to capitalize on that, to take it to the next step, the next nonlinear jump. And that's where Chinese have beaten us hands down by a wide margin. Now, one could argue, oh, could government has done something? What is the government policy? Everything somehow seems to come down to government policy. Well, I don't know if it is entirely government policy. Where the failure of the government is, is in the education system. The education system, which does not emphasize math or science, an education system, even when it emphasizes math and science, doesn't have enough resources. I'll give you a specific example. The high school I went to had basically equipment. I graduated, finished high school in 75, had equipment, which was 1920s. And if you did the experiment right, the gravity will turn out to be negative. I'm not joking with you. I mean, none of the piece of equipment I had access to worked. Our, my, I had no math teacher in, high, in 11th grade. My physics teacher rarely showed up in the class. He, in fact, showed up only twice, beginning of the year and at about a month before the exams. So everybody was left to their own devices. Was that fair to me or fair to anyone else? I was just the lucky one where during bad weather or famine, some plants survived. I was probably one of them. And then I had an opportunity to go further. But should we rely on that as opposed to trying to raise the floor? We did not spend, I mean, all the government spends money, as I, again, you know, as I was saying, done is never defined in India. Done is defined by budget allocation, not by success. Somebody should be doing a test going in the rural areas or in the city schools, government-owned schools, and do a quick test like MCAS we do in Massachusetts or other tests that are done in the United States and see what level are we at in math and science. When we go to colleges, I was lucky that I went to Bichpilani and, uh, you know, they had wonderful labs and wonderful professors. But by then, a lot of people have been left behind, especially the bottom 70%. So when we don't have that, if we don't have people who excel at math, who excel at physics, and then we expect to ourselves to build up an artificial intelligence without having the requisite basis, it's, it's just a misplaced expectation. So it's fair that industry did not leverage it because there was sloshing in money coming from wage arbitrage and they didn't think further ahead. And at the same time, government actually could not even provide sufficient software engineers, especially 
So once with the background in artificial intelligence did not provide enough mathematician, that's the government's job in some sense, educating at least in India, government has taken the responsibility, then they should deliver on it. I mean, there are IITs now in every state. My understanding is that most of them, with the exception of top five or six, 40% faculty positions are empty. Now, why is that? And my understanding is, again, based on limited understanding, that a English professor, a psychology professor, gets paid same wages as a mechanical engineering professor or a mathematics professor. Now, if the same individual goes out, market forces pay different wages to an English major, a psychology undergrad versus, or history undergrad versus somebody who has a PhD in mechanical engineering. But government treats everybody same. But why would, and somebody can make 10 times more outside, why will they become a good faculty? So those are the basic disparity. There are issues on the government side where, the, again, a lot of policy discussions happen, a lot of big people get involved, and I don't have sufficient intelligence to compare with them. But all I see is at the end of the day, define done for me. Why is it that we have so few people who understand artificial intelligence? And again, AI can be those who possess that technology. It will do wonders for them. Those who don't will become slave to those who possess the technology. That's the fundamental truth. And we are falling more and more deeper and deeper where we don't possess that technology. Uh, and it can be used, as you correctly pointed out, for drug discovery. It can be used for law enforcement. It can be used for uh, crop and weather condition analysis to optimize the product. Uh, it could be used in healthcare to identify gut microbes versus the medicines that are given. It could be used to find tax uh, fraudulent activity, for example. Military usage are clear. So it all depends on who has it and who doesn't. And if we don't get catch up pretty soon, I think it's going to be a pretty severe downhill. So Mukeshi, uh, one of the things that was remarkable when I came as a young uh, student to do my PhD and then I switched to, from physics to computer science, I noticed that my professors had grants. They were doing research, not just teaching, which in India is not the case. So they were, they had, uh, my professors had uh, defense department grants and Pentagon grants. And even as a foreign student, I had to go and get uh, security clearance and went with him sometimes to the Pentagon meetings and all that. So it was very, firstly, very inspiring that, you know, I'm, I'm involved at the cutting edge and the work I'm doing is actually coming to something realistic and practical. It also makes you pragmatic that you have to produce something which other people are going to evaluate. And, and it cannot just be some nice pie in the sky theory. Also, it gave me a sense of uh, teamwork, uh, how to produce some product on a very big scale. My, my product, my team's product has to fit into something else that's going on. And then that fits into something big and a huge out, uh, machine or some device that technology is produced. So in India, uh, the academic people are just teaching. And there is not a link with the DRDO or some defense people. Their defense labs and research seem separate. Uh, and the uh, uh, engineering college is just teaching, teaching, but not research oriented. And they're also in the U.S. Another link is industry, industry and defense are connected. So you have all these people from Boeing and General Dynamics and all these guys involved in the defense sector. It's a huge. So defense department funds. The Defense Department funded DARPA, actually funded Internet. The DARPA funded GPS. DARPA, uh, DARPA did this first uh, driverless car competition. 
uh, they gave a, a you know award to the, whoever would make the best driverless car so the defense department has been funding things that have private industry value and in india it's like a defense department is isolated private industry is isolated and in the us it's uh, even academics are funded by the private industry people who have got grants from uh, uh, you know industry to do research so the three part industrial military academic complex three way is in the united states the foundation of its success and in china the same way in china the academic people industry people and military complex are also integrated so in both these countries which are success models for you know competing it, it's different than in india because academic is separate industry is separate government and defense is separate what do you think of this as a kind of a problem is the indian have to think of Uh, you have phrased it um, absolutely correctly, Rajiv Ji. These are three islands, and there are no bridges in India. Here, there are bridges. So two out of three work together. Sometimes industry and universities working together. Sometimes university DODs working together. Department of Defense. Sometimes Department of Defense is working with the industry, and a lot of it is actually industry university collaboration. Yes. And the reason is the way to keep first of all the wages of those. uh who are in teaching profession in science and math and technology should be much higher at the market rate than what they pay in india to begin with number one number two why should best and the brightest stay in academia the way you do it is by providing industry university collaboration where half of the money goes to the professor and half of the money goes to the university for labs and students and other things it does two things it allows uh students and professors to get learned in the most advanced technology it allows them to learn something and explore things that they can do on their own through research uh, i mean look i'm i'm absolutely i didn't graduate on the top of my class by any stretch of imagination i was in the middle of the pack but i had the opportunity to get exposed when i came to grad school and i did very well in my grad school and the reason was again there was a lot of research professors were doing and you feel like okay i can do that research as well i can come up with something which others have not as opposed to importing technology and just keep manufacturing the same thing in fact when i was member of that committee i had made a recommendation two of the key recommendations on that front and though both of them relate to the fact that no country can come up without having science and technology at its core foundation if that does not exist the whole house is a house of cards which basically without much effort can be damaged or destroyed and we are the first, we are the first in experience in uh, 14th century when moguls came in and we didn't have cannons and they did and uh, rest is history and then when british came they had better navigation system better ammunition better equipment and the rest is history as well and around the whole world united states had atomic bomb and japanese did not so the point is science and technology is the foundation of every nation if they want to be somebody and that unfortunately has been missing and because that's missing due to education system because a lack of this basic understanding that why science and technology is so critical to uh survival that enough effort hasn't been made and in this country for so one of the recommendations i had made was that just like csr tax government has put in uh in india for social uh innovations and for social investment by the corporate i had made a suggestion maybe half a percent of that money 
half a percent of a corporate profit beyond certain size, whatever the way CSR imposed, equal money, if that could be imposed, that it must go towards industry-university collaboration. Wonderful. So what that means is tens of thousands of crore rupees now go to the best and the brightest professors in the universities who work in conjunction with the, with the industry, developing homegrown technologies. I always have, I, I'm fond of saying this, uh, Brahmast cannot be purchased. Brahmast cannot be borrowed. It has to be earned by tap and tapasya, by hard work. No matter what you do, you've got to do your own tap and tapasya. Uh, in anybody in the history of Indian history, historic or prehistoric, nobody got Brahmast by borrowing it. Yeah, it had to be is, earned. So, right? And somehow we have forgotten that. I mean, the innovators of the world, which we were for thousands and thousands and millions of years, we forgot that completely. And now we're totally dependent on a foundation that is borrowed foundation. So until we improve that and create this industry university collaboration, one and second suggestion I had made was that some of that money is used to uh, set up corporate venture funds. Corporate venture fund is a very common phenomenon in the United States. Every major company in the United States has its own fund. They invest money in startups. And, and those startups, when they come up, either get purchased by the company or by anybody else. But it allows the new homegrown technology to develop. And that's the best way to move forward. And it's not only the IT. Unfortunately, there are VC funds in India now, both from the United States or Europe, and many homegrown. Just about all of them are focused on IT and apps. And I want to make a point. A country's foundation is not made by IT and apps. It's actually, having come from IT background myself, having worked in supercomputers and telecom and all of the technology, I must say it's the mechanical engineering, it's the material science, it's the chemistry, it's physics, it's manufacturing. That's what creates the economic power of the country. What we need is venture funds which are focused on, for example, improving agriculture output or agriculture machinery, improving the quality of enhanced, enhanced precision machinery, making advanced chemicals so we don't have to import them from China to make our medicines, or uh, you know, advanced materials. So even when you set up a lithium-ion battery plant in India, all the raw material has to come from somewhere else anyway. So what are we trying to do? Just becoming, again, a sweatshop for the rest of the world? So to get out of that mode, it needs two things. It's own venture funds that are focused on non-IT, fundamental core sectors of economy, and university industry collaboration. I made these two recommendations in 2015. We are sitting at 2020. Five years later, unfortunately, nothing seems to have happened to those recommendations. Um, I really believe uh, Rajivji, Narendra's heart is at the right place. He's the best prime minister, I believe. Uh, country ever had. I truly believe it. And his heart and his commitment to improve the whole lot of the country, the bottom 80% on one side, and then the whole country moving together, top-down, bottom-up approach. But I also believe that the people who have surrounded him, who are advising him, they don't share his enthusiasm. I don't believe they share his commitment, or at least put it this way, even if they share it, their magnitude of that understanding and the sharing is lower than where he is committed to. So the implementation of anything or understanding of these uh, important things get blown away. 
I mean, I'm surprised in 2015, we submitted the recommendation to Niti Aayog. It's five years. At least one or two CEOs probably have changed over there. And the recommendations are collecting dust. That means in five years, we could probably have had hundreds of startups by now in mechanical engineering, agriculture, chemical engineering, material science space, building our own homegrown technologies. And we have wasted that five years. In the meantime, Chinese are moving away at a rocket ship pace. So if a car is moving at 20 miles per hour, another car is going at 70 miles per hour, yes, we are moving, but the gap is increasing. And if that gap continues to increase as it's happening today, in 10 years, 20 years, I shudder to think that we will basically be a subjugated uh, nation under the dominance and influence of China. Yes. And that will be a tragedy. I believe we're headed there. And this is bitter medicine that my book is explaining to people uh, with hard facts. Now, you mentioned the lithium battery. Uh, uh, so to go deeper into it, uh, in India, uh, when the, this new craze that we should get into electric vehicles and everybody making the trying to make them uh, now requires importing the, the most expensive part, the high-tech part is the battery part has to be imported from China. So, uh, but you know, what they have not looked at is that there are several million people working in India employed in the uh, internal combustion engine based auto industry, uh, ancillaries, uh, you know, parts, uh, you know, India is exporting these parts and making cars. Now, as the, uh, uh, as we turn Indian economy, Indian auto industry to this electric vehicles, uh, the the guy who is making the the per, the mid, middle medium size industry who is making some parts is going to go out of business. Uh, maybe the Mahindra and Mahindra and the big guys will do fine because they have the capital. They'll buy all this modern technology from China, make cars and send sell them. But the small repair shop on the side of a road in every town who knows how to repair this or that uh, you know combustion engine type thing, uh, he, he he's going to be out of work. He doesn't know he'll not. So the amount of people unemployed will be huge. And the, the major component of technology to be used is not the, the internal combustion engine, which you mentioned the other day we were talking, which India knows, India has mastered it. But when we go from this old tech to the new tech, and the new tech is uh, in China-based, actually we're creating jobs in China. And we are, we, are, we are creating jobs in China and getting rid of jobs in India. So what do you think of that? It, I mean, they haven't thought through that, okay, it's a nice thing, uh, very fashionable that we should make electric cars, but maybe we have to first cre create a domestic uh, battery industry, uh, which is, which is do our own research, which will take, of course, several years to do, but do build a foundation, then create our own uh, manufacturing. That is the engine, the heart of the whole thing. Until we do that, just to import from China and dismantle the old, old auto industry is actually a foolish idea. I totally, agree. I couldn't agree more with you. I totally agree with you. Look, there is no, uh, frankly, the, the whole strategic aspect in this thinking is missing. And Narendra alone cannot do everything 24-7 or he works as many hours as he wishes. He alone cannot do it. It's somebody else's job. I have no idea whose job it is to just put two and two together. What you just said is spot on. If we are going to get all the imports, so right now we make combustion engine in India, money stays in India, uh, the people are employed in India. Now we are going to put that out because we need environment to be better, which is a laudable goal, but then import all the key components from China. So who benefits from it? It's not Chinese fault. It's 
Indian fault. It's not Chinese mistake. China will do because they should be selling. And there are companies I'm hearing they're setting up the lithium ion plants in India, but guess what they are going to do? They are going to use the same technology that was given to them probably for the next five years, 10 years. But the truth is that lithium ion technology is changing every six months today. So the old model that you just import the technology and just keep manufacturing it is dead long time ago. Japanese proved it, Chinese proved it, Koreans proved it. I don't know why is it that we cannot learn from them and say, if we are going to manufacture, government got to impose this limitation. If you are going to import lithium-ion plant, which is fine, but guess what? You better spend 10% of your money on that R&D, not just take the tax credit, by the way, so that you get tax benefit. I want to see actual result, which is the batteries, which, are, which have patents in India, which are honored globally, not just filed in India, but actually have a merit to stand in its own right, that the papers are, what is the proof point ultimately in some sense? Uh, the quality of papers actually tell you in the highest level of publications, what is the quality of research going on in India? What we have is a mutual admiration club where all these academia get together, they please, they please each other and approve each other's papers. I want to know in advanced materials journals, the top one or two journals in the world, how many papers have originated from India? coming from a country that invented material science. Nothing. I mean, in 10 years, probably 10 papers, if I have to speculate, or maybe none. So that's my problem and that's my concern uh, or question, <laughs> which is, unless there's a homegrown industry, uh, it's not going to happen. Second thing is, the technology also has to improve the lives of bottom 70% or 80% of the population. Otherwise, what will happen is, which is what's happening today, the top 20, 30% is going one way, another 70% are being left behind. So we have already a major divide within the country, and then we have a divide vis-a-vis China of another order of magnitude, and that is non-sustainable. So I'll, in fact, give you one specific example. Today, Tomatoes rot in the field, right? And then before they rot in the field, farmer basically takes all of them out, come into the city, sell it to in the urban areas, whatever you have to do at a rock bottom price. Why? Because the tomatoes cannot be stored. There's no cold storage. If cold storage exists, it's very expensive. And the farmers is the, the losing end. Why couldn't we innovate our homegrown cold storage that is 30, 40% cheaper than what the rest of the world makes. Right. And put it in every village, put it in every, you know, create a market system where this could happen. By the way, I made this recommendation in again 2015. Could we announce grand price challenges to say anybody in the country who comes up with a better design for a cold storage that is 30% more efficient can be made more cheaper? If Chinese could do it, why couldn't we do it? And then put it out everywhere. The farmer can get better price because they are not impacted by the, at the, same, the surge of the produce at the same time. Second thing is, if the farmer could be taught out of that, whatever excess production is, can you make ketchup out of it? Right. right? You sell the ketchup and you sell the tomatoes. You sell not only the raw mangoes, but you actually sell pickle along with it. Right. When you do that, you suddenly have a scale of economy which can go from 50% of our economy today, rural economy produces in India, 15% of the GDP. That 50% should produce at minimum 50%. What are we going to do about it? Only way it can be done is by value add. 
right? Which means better education, electricity in the rural areas, and this emphasis that we can also make catch up there. And by the way, this was more difficult 10 years ago, but not today. Because in the online marketplace, like, you know, I love certain things that are grown in my hometown. I want to order online. I don't need a middleman to do that. Today, a farmer making a pickle in a particular way in Punjab or Rajasthan or Himachal Pradesh or wherever the person comes from can make it in their village, should be able to put it online, and I should be able to buy it directly without needing any middleman except a small fee I pay to the online. That will transform the whole country dramatically where 50% could produce 100% of the GDP as it exists today. Um, and by the way, I made that suggestion, not in the report, but actually I sent it to, I think I gave it to Ekal Vidyala folks to transform the tribal area. But they mean well, uh, they, their intent is pure, but the implementation is so slow while people are still waiting for things to happen. So I think all I'm saying is bottom line, if we put our, if we put our head together, realize that science and technology is the basic foundation of any strong economy or a nation and work upon it on different aspects of it synergistically, um, that would be great. If we don't, just like AI, if we keep falling behind, I think the outcome is pretty clear that there is no alternative but to be subjugated and potentially colonized, at least effectively colonized one more time. I thought that for 700 years was long enough that we would have learned our lesson to say never again. But uh, it's not clear to me if besides Narendra and few other people, if really the powers to be, and I must say about this quote unquote intelligentsia in India, frankly, most of the intelligentsia or intellectuals as they are called, I call them bankrupt intellectuals or bankruptuals. <laughs> and these bankruptuals are the fundamental, one of the major reasons that we are so down and have not come up because they're clueless. They put up their ideology, uh, which is completely nonsensical, instead of saying the others have done it. I mean, Chinese had the similar intellectuals, but guess what did they do? China is probably a bigger capitalist country today than most of the other countries in the world. Yes. So it's not about capitalism or communism. I don't think it's about left or right. I really believe Nobody went, I in fact was in a conference and I asked the question, how many left turns do you have to take to get to your home without ever making a right turn? Even for a mile long distance, it was 20, 30, 50, 100 miles before they could get to home, if at all they could get to home. I asked the same question about the right turn. So it's not about the left turn, the right turn is the shortest turn to success. That's what the country needs today. I love it. I love right? it. This is very good. So, you know, one of the things when you were discussing this, uh, the, the laziness or the ineptitude of the corporate sector to invest in uh, future uh, technology and all, one of the things I'm reminded of is, uh, you know, people like IBM in those days, the big ones, the big, big, big tech companies would, would uh, invest in the uh, university uh, with professors, with graduate students. And then as a result, the student had a job waiting for him. He could, he, uh, when he's graduated, he's done so much research. His professor's done so much research for with some industry tech, uh, collaboration that you know he he's already. And so far, as far as university is concerned, it's an investment in a pipeline to recruit people, because they are they are investing in uh, the university has got the infrastructure. 
the university catches these brains and the, 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 the industry does not have to bother training and all that. The university does it for them. And by getting involved with these students, they are, they are able to pick and choose and say, okay, this is a smart one, this is a smart one. By the time, before you graduate, you come and work for us. So actually, a far-sighted industry would invest in the academic world as kind of a way to groom their own human resource, their own laboratory people. Absolutely. Yeah, they should be thinking like that. They should be thinking it's not only 0.5% the government requires, which I think you have a brilliant idea, it should be done. But they should do it happily saying that, okay, I'll put it in places where I know they're smart people. I want to get those brains. I have so many hundred vacancies. I want to have a deal. I will invest in those young people. I'll pick the best and I will recruit them. This would be so great for both. Now, one final question, uh, Mukesh ji. Did India miss the boat recently when uh, U.S. put these sanctions, these all these uh, tariffs on China and these? The, you know, I had uh, delegations. I was asked in New Jersey State, where I live, to uh, join to enter a discussion with a delegation from uh, Thailand, a delegation from Vietnam, from Philippines. These delegations are coming to. Uh, pitch to the American industry that uh, they should relocate part of their production from China to their country. Uh, so what they've done is New Jersey has, is a center for pharmaceuticals, Johnson and Johnson and all these companies. So they had delegation for, from the pharma industry uh, to, to pitch to these people. And of course, the state government facilitating all this. And uh, sometimes from the US the federal government, somebody would uh, tag along to show the, the why it's a good thing to do. And then uh, New Jersey has a lot of uh, telecom because of the old Bell Labs and AT&T and all those things. So whatever the major industry are in a particular state, they sent delegations of uh, industrialists specific to that. So now, you know, India could have done that. India could have captured, uh, India could have said, okay, which are the five, 10 industries where we have a competitive possibility vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, vis-a-vis -vis other people, quickly get delegations from those industries, go to state by state, wherever the Americans have those kind of industries, target industry specific. And I wrote about it, actually. I did some uh, YouTube talks on this. I wrote about it also. But I, I, did, I, I talked to some guy in the consulate here, but nobody seemed to have done it. Uh, I, I, and, and India missed the boat, I, I would say, because some of these ASEAN countries have done well uh, because uh, during the China uh, problem. So what, what do you think is the reason? I mean, do you feel that this is so? And why, what do you think is the reason? Uh, is it Ministry of External Affairs job? Is it Science and Technology people, Ministry of Industry job? Uh, who dropped the ball? Because certainly Modi wanted it, but somehow it didn't happen. Um, yeah, I mean, you make a great point, Rajivji. Again, uh, you're spot on, frankly. Uh, in the last five years, a lot of industry uh, decided uh, in the United States who were importing from China that they need two sources at minimum because of tariffs and other issues. One in China, even if it's in China, there should be at least one outside China so that they don't get caught with the tariffs or other things. Second thing is some of the companies decided to move lock, stock and barrel away from China. Now, it's not like 80% of the industry came out, but 30% or 20% and some are in the migration, they are going out. That's more industry and more manufacturing many times over than what we have presently in India, right? Should that have been channelized to India? Absolutely. Were there noises made about it? We invite them, we do this, we do that. I mean, we certainly verbally uh, seem to do and say a lot of right things. 
But I don't know again what is done just because I've invited somebody. But what does done mean? Done means that did we make the land available? Did we make the electricity available? Did we make the water available? Did the whole thing happen within a span of literally 60 days? Every state talks about one window clearing, except I never met that. I never found that one window. All I see <laughs> is the mirages of window after window, endless mirage. Uh, so there's a whole question of competitiveness. Uh, I think we missed the boat there uh, uh, quite a bit. Now the new administration, I don't know how much pressure will there be on China. Uh, don't know. We as Indians are good brains, excellent brains. We, we, we believe in opportunity. We believe in hard work. We, we have history backing us up. What we are missing is the top 1% of the, of the country, be it wealthy, be it politician, be it bureaucrats, be it uh, folks who run industries, their vested interest, in most cases, they don't seem to grow beyond that. They are the ones who are failing 99% of the Absolutely. country, Agreed. not the country failing itself. Agreed. We are good. We can be whatever we want to do. But the ruling elite, the tragedy is the top 1%. The ruling elite in different domains. Absolutely. I, I, I. So yeah. finally, I want to get some advice from you. I've written a hard-hitting book. I've mentioned all these things. Uh, and and uh, some people are very happy that somebody is saying all this. You're one of them. And a lot of people in India saying, you know, somebody has to say this, shake up, wake up, uh, because only then, uh, then will there be uh, solutions coming. Uh, but there's also another group that are very lethargic that want to sort of say, we are okay, we are 5,000 year civilization, nostalgia, very uh, sort of, uh, you know, into emotions, sentimental. Uh, I feel that in, I have a fault also in this. Uh, a lot of us, me included, 10 years ago, we started pumping up the emotional, we are great. Uh, and so what happened is a lot of our public started feeling great because in the past we were great and we have this identity, which is great. But actually it's a disservice because you can also become lazy. You can just sit in an auditorium and a guy keeps telling you how great we are slide after slide. Uh, and, and you don't have critical thinking and you keep clapping because it makes you feel good. So you go home and think, think okay, and I'm an activist. So I think the, the leaders of this uh, public intellectual space and the leaders who are all over the, in all these different Hindu groups and India groups and Bharatiya groups need to also ask that we need to demand progress. We need to demand hard work. We need to demand results. We need to be pragmatic. And we can't just feed the ego that we are so great because sometimes that is, misleading also it is also uh, it is also uh, kind of holding us back by going on pampering and flattering our sense of ego rather than hard work chinese china guy, guy, uh, I, I remember a chinese lady who ran a chinese restaurant here in princeton who used to tell us as a, when our kids were young we used to often go there pick up food and all so she used to say we chinese are told that we must bow to the westerners uh, but quietly, we have to keep building our economy and money. And one day when we are very strong, we'll show them. But in the meantime, we don't brag. We don't we quietly do things. So Chinese have this tapasya karo, hard work karo, uh, discipline mein mehnat karo, work ethic. And don't talk too big until you've already beaten them. And then you can talk big. So India may start announcing big, ye karenge, wo karenge, everybody, kiya kuch hai nahi abhi. So is this a 
psychological problem we have i mean is it a self esteem are we are we people who uh, have been beaten up for so long that we just need to feel good and the politician or leader who comes along makes us feel good we love him uh, and we think job is done because he told us so we are not demanding too much we are not demanding hard results no nonsense results from leadership what do you think of all that if if a country's progress was to be measured by the announcement it made we will be a superpower by a wide margin i can tell you that much um i also agree with you 100% that it's the self chest thumping and beating the chest and also self praising and mutual admiration club effort uh has really done a lot of damage to the country i was at a conference where an eminent gentleman from india was speaking and he he talked about how we produce more undergarments than any other country in the world well is that a surprise i mean we have more population we need more undergarments my question is do we produce the most high quality advanced material in the world my question is do we produce the most advanced chemicals used in pharmaceuticals in the world do we produce the best amount of uh, any high quality product that we can pick up whether it's in software mechanical engineering agriculture otherwise in the world that's how the success is measured what we have done is we have lowered the bar of defining success just like we have lowered the bar in defining what done is d o n e should be defined crisply the lower the bar declare the success i mean if you think about a cricket game the score is 0-0 and we already declared the victory <laughs> right because the game is going to start yeah. the victory is decided in the end of the game not at the beginning of the game so yeah. what you are saying is spot on that it's a self praise it's announcements it's pronouncements it's everything but implementation and i always say we first have to innovate ourselves then we have to implement it ourselves and then only we become incredible what we do is we make the announcement and then we become incredible our announcement is we are incredible we were incredible don't get me wrong we were incredible but then we deteriorated to where we are today and i sincerely believe that we can go back to being incredible if we innovate and if we implement so your book is spot on the timing could not be better it's a bitter truth but it better be told that bitter truth today than later somebody should have told that bitter truth rajeshi thank you so much for writing this book showing that mirror to the face and hopefully that will ignite a debate among the people not the bankruptuals because all they will do is bankrupt mentally bankrupt intellectuals is to try to push it down and say what does rajeev ji know sitting in his porch in new jersey well guess what it doesn't matter where you are what matters is where your heart is and your heart is exactly at the right place and i i want to thank you actually for doing this because most people want to curry favor here there somewhere you have no vested interest in it except the logical goals i want to thank you so much for it actually thank you thank you so much uh, for doing this uh, and uh, mukesh bhai this is very very nice of you i want my viewers to know that uh, mukesh chatterjee is a very very successful guy he's got a very simple humble heart uh, he has he's lover of india he's a lover of the dharma uh, but he's a no nonsense pragmatic guy engineering trained analytical you can see that happening mukesh ji i want to 
continue our dialogue and conversation on a regular basis because I think this will be very useful for my viewers. So thank you very much, Mukesh. Thank you. Thank you so much for the thank opportunity, Rajiv. Glad to be. You.